Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Background YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest Leland Miller, who is the founder and CEO at the China Beige Book. Leland, welcome back to the program. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we'll just dive right in. So, Leland, a little birdie told me that China might not actually be on the doorstep of an imminent collapse. I'm shocked here because that's the, the, the narrative that I seem to keep hearing from mainstream media. Can you give us a, a little bit of a, uh, an actual view into what's going on with the Chinese economy and why that notion is not correct? Yeah, it was, it was interesting because over the summer, we started getting all these emails uh, you know, from CNBC and Bloomberg and saying, you know, it's China collapsing. And we were like, all right, well, that, that's what they want us to talk about. That doesn't mean anything. But then we started getting a lot of client emails saying, hey, look, is this the hard landing? Is China collapsing? And we ignored it. We ignored it. We ignored it until we couldn't ignore it anymore. And then you know, we ended up putting out just a slew of notes explaining, no, China's not collapsing. No, it's not a it's not a questionable uh, borderline case. Here's all the reasons why people should understand that you know 2023 is seeing a recovery. It's it's a pathetic recovery, but it's a sequential recovery nonetheless, and that is a very far cry from collapse. So you know we've we've focused on the consumption story and the manufacturing story, and of course everyone's worried about property, and that's part of the economy. But you know, uh, focus on that and just go one by one and say, look. China's not doing that well. But what's happening in China right now is actually quite similar to what you saw in 2021. In 2021, Evergrande was scaring everybody, you know, it was going to be contagion from Evergrande. 2023, it's country garden. Every, you know, everything's going to fall apart because of, because of the property contagion. That's not the way China works. It's not the way China's financial system works. We probably talked about it in the 2021 context the last time, you know, you and I spoke. But, but in any case, it is a... Um, you know, it's 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 interesting because you know I, I didn't expect that the the big thing we'd have to defend is is why China is not collapsing. That was that wasn't on the bingo card for like July of 2023. Maybe just to rewind the clock back to the start of this year, I think there was there was a lot of anticipation, a very hot narrative of the China opening and the growth that that was going to drive. So I think what people in the U.S. maybe were extrapolating was that. There was a period of time where the U.S. was locked down. When we turned the economy back on, we injected a lot of stimulus. Transfer payments were enormous, and that actually put the economy into hyperdrive. And the thought was that that was what was going to happen in China. I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that it clearly didn't play out exactly like that. Although, to what you just mentioned, there has been some sort of steady month-over-month growth under the hood. It just wasn't what we all expected. So why has the growth, and we'll get to inflation as well, but specifically, why has the growth story just been so different this year in in China from what we all expected at the beginning of the year? Yeah, well, the expectations, you're right, at the beginning of the year was that there's going to be some sort of super mega rally and everyone's going to be rich off A shares. Uh, Hindsight, it's wrong. It was wrong at the time. I mean, we were screaming into the wind that this was a ridiculous expectation to have, at least early on in the year. So when Xi Jinping pulled back the the COVID zero band-aid, Everyone got real excited. They said, you know, we saw what happened when things closed down and opened up the United States. And of course, China and the United States seem very similar. So, you know, we're going to have this explosive rally early on in the year. And what we said to that was, look, 
Q2 is, is, is TBD. We'll see what happens in Q2. But Q1, there's absolutely zero prospect of there being a rally in January, December, January, February, you know, even March, most likely, because hundreds of millions of people were going to get COVID. You know, everyone was running from the virus, so they had the virus. You had a very significant COVID zero administrative state that had to be broken down nationally and provincially and, and locally. And so there was never really a chance that you were going to have this explosion <clears throat> on the consumption side early in the year. Keep in mind, too, that in the United States, you had huge household stimulus. Uh, and in China, you didn't. Um, so not only is China a different type of, uh, you know, economy in terms of saving, you know, much more savings oriented than, than the U.S. consumer driven economy, uh, but also you had a ton of consumer stimulus in the United States. So everything was set up for there to be a big rally in the United States, too big a rally, I would say. Uh, and in China it was the opposite. So, th so the, what people thought was a similar situation was never all that similar. Uh, but what's interesting is when you got into Q2, there was a real legitimate question of whether you were going to see, you know, a decent rally, a super rally, an extended rally, a short term, you know, it was, it was a big question. And, 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 you know, we had urged people to temper some of their expectations, but even we were surprised at how blech this rally, you know, this recovery ended up being. Uh, so, you know, you, you get into the, into the spring and we were expecting better numbers and, you know, in April and May and June, and uh, they were better. And there was a recovery and there was a sequential recovery, which is what people were missing who were overly focused on, you know, the wrong pieces of official data that they didn't understand, like the manufacturing, official manufacturing PMI. But, you know, they, you saw sequential recovery. You look at our data, you look at China Beige Book data, you look at Saishin data, there, things were getting better month to month. Everything is better than last year when there was mostly, you know, lockdowns throughout. So there is recovery, but it was just an extremely disappointing, quite pathetic recovery. And, and, you know, that sort of carried on into the summer when it combined with the fact that the property sector was getting worse, not better, but the fact that shadow banks started wobbling, then everyone started saying, well, not only are we not going to get a big rally, not only do we not seeing a recovery, maybe China is going to collapse. And I, that was sort of when everything jumped the shark, but, but nevertheless, people went as, as is the want with China. Everyone is usually very bipolar. Markets are very bipolar on China. They're either really excited about this soaring opportunity right around the corner, stimulus ahead, whatever it might be, or they think China's a day away from collapse. And I, so we flip back to the China collapse scenario over the summer, uh, which was incorrect. And you know we are still seeing a sequential recovery, uh, it, you know through Q2 through Q3. It's just not a very good one. And property is a mess. But property is only part of the economy. And what they're doing in property is being done because the government feels comfortable deflating the property bubble. This isn't happening, you know, randomly. It's happening because the government's trying to, you know, uh, engineer a, a, a letting, you know, a bubble popping, letting air out of the bubble, at least of the property sector. And that's painful, uh, but they are doing it in a somewhat controlled fashion and it looks ugly and it's painful, but, but, but it is being engineered nonetheless. So things are great in China, but they're certainly not collapsing. And that's where we are. All right. There were, there were a couple things that I want to underscore and highlight there, Leland. And one was just the, the very different nature of the U.S. consumer demand-based economy versus what happens in China. So I want to return to that in a second. But the point that you made, you, you've made this point, I think, in, in every interview that you and I have had together. But I want to just continue to underscore it for the audience is that China is a non-commercial financial system, right? So the way that things like counterparty risk in China work is just very different from the U.S. system because there's a central authority that can say, you lend to you. So 
China isn't as much at risk for things like a Lehman moment, right? Which people in the U.S. tend to, or sort of Western economies that do have more market-based uh, systems tend to tend to look for. So I just want to again underscore and see if you have anything else to kind of highlight on that. But I think that's a very important point for the audience to to understand in terms of how China's setup is different from ours in the U.S. Yeah, that's exactly right. It all comes down to the financial system. Uh, you know, we have a, a note template that China is not hitting its Lehman moment. And it looks like a Mad Lib sheet. And we just insert, you know, the, the, the parties of, you know, that are the circumstances of the time and the dates of the time. And otherwise, it's the same note. And we just, you know, put it out whenever there's someone comes out and markets start panicking. It's a Lehman moment. China is not going to have a Lehman moment. China's system does not allow for a Lehman moment. So what is, what, why this is important is that a lot of people saw what happened in the U.S. and they saw what happened in Europe. Like, well, you know, China's a mess too. It's just a matter of time before they have their, you know, their crisis too. Uh, the financial systems are very different. So you brought up the fact that China has a non-commercial financial system. What does that mean? It means that uh, essentially China controls all the counterparties in its economy. You don't have counterparty risk when the government can step in and tell a borrower to borrow, a supplier to supply, a lender to lend. Uh, you know, it makes sure that the, that the you know you don't freeze up liquidity. You have the motions of the economy, the the you know the gears of the economy continue to run. Now, there's a lot of downsides to this. Uh, but the upside to this, you know, is that is that you have a crisis and you sort of swoosh and swoosh, you know, tidal waves of capital from one side of the economy to the other to plug up problems. Uh, so you're constantly chasing good money after bad, and you're constantly, you know, uh, you know, having good companies bail out bad companies and 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 you know, solvent governments bail out insolvent local governments or local government financing vehicles. What's the downside? The downside is over time. So much good money is chasing after bad. So much new capital is going to unproductive uses versus productive uses that you have a massive slowdown. You know, you're not productivity tanks, growth tanks, and you have stasis at extremely low levels of growth. That's where China's headed. That's the downside to China's model. It's not susceptibility to an acute crisis where there actually is very little susceptibility to a Lehman moment. It's, it's about the fact that this, the way the economy is built is 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 chasing it down a rabbit hole of increasingly lower growth uh, and lower productivity, and uh, and that and that's where China's headed. So I heard you just say that China, the the CCP, is sort of engineering a a prick in the bubble of the property sector, and that started with Evergrande. So can you kind of walk us through why there's that that prick in the bubble, and then like yeah, let, let's just start with that. Well, the way that China has traditionally reported growth and uh, created growth was that they would be there would be some sort of organic level of activity. Let's say it was four and a half percent some given quarter, and then you know they look at, at what the target was and the government, which which had based its reputation for many many years, not anymore, but for many many years on the idea of high levels of growth, would say no, no, we need eight percent. So the extra three percent, three and a half percent, they would go to property. They they'd put more credit into the property sector. They'd build more, and you create more activity. Because anyone who looks at these types of numbers understands that GDP is not a, you know, a gauge of productivity in the economy. It's not productive growth. It's aggregate growth. So we used to tell the story a little tongue-in-cheek, but maybe not that tongue-in-cheek, that if you wanted to hit 8% growth in a quarter, all you do is build a bridge, tear it down, rebuild the same bridge, tear it down, rebuild the same bridge, tear it down, keep going until you hit 8 or 9 or 9 or 12 or 15% GDP. Now, you'd have really bad consequences from that in the medium and long term. But you know that's that sort of shows that the GDP growth is, an, is, is about aggregate growth. It's not about running your economy well. It's not about being productive. And so their focus used to be on these aggregate levels of growth, which they would treat as a report card on how they were doing. 
Um, and so for a long time, property worked by saying, you know, we need more growth. We're going to juice it up. Here's more growth and let's build more bridges to nowhere. And let's build more, you know, uh, let's build more apartment complexes. Well, it's, it's growth. But it wasn't the kind of growth that they should have been aiming for if they wanted to really strengthen China in the long run. So that was the way it worked for a while. And I think at a certain point, we can argue when that when that was, uh, you know, Xi Jinping and others decided this is actually very dangerous for China because what we're doing right now is is we are putting so much good money after bad. You know, it's it's we're not we're we're not working on productivity. We're not focused on innovation. We are you know building up to unsustainable levels of debt. And yeah, the rest of the world is. But we care more than the rest of the world because, you know, in the United States and Europe and everywhere else, you know, people run for two-year terms and four-year terms and six-year terms and they try to spend like crazy and, you know, then they get out and then they complain about, you know, spending and debt. But in China, you know, the party the party thinks it's going to be ruling the country for 50, 100, 1,000 years, whatever, you know. So the idea is we can't pass the buck. We are the buck. You know, we have, we have, to, we have to manage the situation. So I think that there became increasingly concerned that, the, that this economic model was dying out or would die out suddenly, and they didn't know what the ending was. So what Xi Jinping has been doing for a number of years now has been actively moving to try to curtail the old model and focus on slower, healthier growth. Now, some t- things he's doing quite well. You know, if you look at what's happening in the property sector, everyone's complaining, oh, there's so much pain. Look at the economic dislocations. I think this actually is a, is a very positive sign for Xi Jinping. He's doing what he said he would do. On the consumption side, which I know you're interested in too, they've been doing absolutely not. You know, so a property's got a better grade in terms of, 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 of pushing forward reform than consumption, which is, which is right now is pretty much an F. So some things are doing right, some things are doing wrong, but the idea here is that the old economic model, you know, Xi Jinping's looking forward 10, 20, 50 years saying that this is, this is not going to work for China. We need to step in and, and change everything right now. And, and that's what they're doing. Uh, a lot of this change is being done because the party thinks it has to do it, not because, you know, the economy's falling apart while the party sits there and, you know, panics. Yeah. You know, listening to, listening to you, what it reminded me of, I think it, Good, good heart's law or something like that is when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And maybe that broadly sums up some of the problems with the, the Soviet economy back in the day. And maybe China is falling victim to, to the same idea. So that, that's very interesting. I, I, I want to actually move on to, to talk a little bit about Xi Jinping as well. And I want to, I want to get your sense on how, like what what his priorities are. So in many ways, I think from a, it's, it's kind of interesting from, from a Western seat, I think a lot of people look over at exactly what you just said about being able to say, Hey, we're going to be the only party in power for 50 years. We're going to take a long-term view as opposed to these politicians that we get in Washington who are just so short-sighted. They spend 50% of their time raising money and they don't really, they only care about themselves and their two or four years or six years in the limelight or whatever it is. But there's also some downsides to that as well, right? Maybe being the, the uh, just because an economy is so vast, it's very difficult to wrap your head around all of the different moving parts. And maybe the one one child policy being the best example of something that seemed very long sighted, but was really disastrous with the benefit of of hindsight. And they're going to pay the price for that soon. You know, I, I, I suppose. Could, could you kind of connect the dots here between what is going on in, in Xi's mind and what are his objectives on the political side of things and how that's going to continue to bleed into this slower growth story that you're painting here for China? I, I think it all comes back to a changing of the social compact in China. Uh, back 
a number of years ago, I guess it was 2021-ish, um, a lot of things started happening in China that were very different than any preceding year. And one of the things, of course, we saw straight from Xi Jinping was the common prosperity uh, platform. And I was pushing, you know, dealing with the wealth inequality across China. Of course, it's a problem around the world, but it's a big deal in China. The idea that the social compact for, for, for decades in China had been, we are the party, you will support us, we are the one party. Uh, and in return, we will deliver high levels of growth and we will make you rich. And I think as Xi Jinping and others looked at that economic growth model and said, look, this, this model's in trouble. It's either dying out or, or, or it could die at any, any time. We you know we have to shift things around and we, we want to redefine the social compact as we will no longer focus on high levels of growth. We will deliver, we will deliver slower, healthier growth. We will spread it around more evenly. We will deal with wealth inequality and we will make China stronger and we will, uh, you know, spread the riches more more evenly. Uh, you saw that in the Common Prosperity Campaign, where the idea was, look, people, some people have benefited more than others. We're going to reverse that. You saw that in the tech sector crackdown. You saw that in the arrests of, of big billionaire moguls across the economy. Uh, you, know, you saw that in, 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 the, in the, the, the cutting down and tutoring that was advantageous to certain segments of the society and others. Essentially, what was going on socio-politically, economically across the board was this idea that we need to redefine our social compact with the people. The old one doesn't work anymore, and we need to so redefine it for the coming age. And so, part of what happened was was uh, you know was was what happened in common prosperity and tech sector, et cetera. And then part of what happened was a a, a rethinking of the economic growth model. And what you saw was much lower growth, much more you know many more points of weak data that were being announced that they admitted to. I mean, it was remarkable. We couldn't believe that they were announced, not just, you know, changing the model, but they were admitting to just how bad some of the data were, you know, month after month, quarter after quarter, and year after year. So they were changing, you know, the the, the entire, uh, you know, idea of, of, of what economic governance was in China. They changed the stimulus playbook. This is something that Wall Street just simply couldn't get their head around. They're starting to now, maybe, uh, but for years and years, you know, we used to do performances and panels and, and other things with, with, with all these, you know, banks and they would come on and say, look, we understand how China works. We were taught that they like high levels of growth. They stimulate into weakness. There's no way there's going to be a bad party Congress here because that's just not how the Chinese communists run their economy. So there's all these predictions, stimulus, always a day away. And for years, I mean, not days, not weeks, not months, for years. Every single Wall Street prediction on China was wrong. It was remarkable because it was all based on the idea that, you know, Xi Jinping has a pain point. This is all for show. He'll eventually revert to this idea that he wants to drive high levels of growth. He'll eventually revert to the old stimulus playbook. None of that was happening. Uh, and we had an advantage uh, because not only were we listening to what Xi and the government were saying, uh, but we actually could look through China Beige Book data and see what they were doing. And, you know, we track growth and we track the labor market inflation, but what we really like to track is credit. And what we could see is that when, when, you know, people were out there predicting a huge wave of stimulus that was right around the corner, we were looking at our credit indicators. We were looking at borrowing. We were looking at bond issuance. We were looking at, at, at loan rejections and applications, pent up demand, cost of capital. And we're like, none of these is auguring in 
you know, a, a wave of, of even medium-sized stimulus. I mean, what are people thinking? We're, we're looking at something that says absolutely no stimulus is happening. The, we're going the other direction. It's high deleveraging. It's supreme deleveraging in, a, in, in the property sector. And yet we're, you know, you turn on the TV and, and every Wall Street shop was out there saying, no, 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 we're about to have a big A-share rally. We're about to have a big, you know, uh, bounce back in growth based on the fact that the Chinese communists love to stimulate. And we're like, this is, this is make-believe. So, you know, for a while, you just, you look at the indicators and the funny thing was, we weren't saying anything different than Xi Jinping was saying. You know, we were very much saying what the party was saying publicly. It's just that people who were watching the economy for decades didn't think that that's, you know, that wasn't how they were taught to treat China in 2005 or 2015. So they kept the same playbook, the same expectations, the same, you know, fanatical obsession with with big stimulus right around the corner and that's why people were wrong on china for 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 years in a row and uh only now are, are we starting to slightly see people open their eyes but i'll tell you what what did i get on friday and i, I thought people you know had sort of given up the idea of big stimulus rumors going around that she is that people are disappointed in she that the elders are cracking down that she is going to have no choice but to do big stimulus and we're asked to comment on this and it's just it's the same story same story you know people don't want to think that china's not going to resort to big bang stimulus but uh, there has been no sign of it for years for many years and there's no sign of it right now in our credit debt what's going on everybody thank you for listening to on the margin i just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of blockworks research now many of you will probably be familiar with our platform but blockworks research is the most blue chip spot to get research data governance models and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. One thing to to highlight for folks who might not be as aware or in the weeds of what's going on in China compared to the US or Europe or whatever is the inflation picture in China is markedly different from all of, basically all of the Western economies. So the this headline CPI in China, base in you know going even back to October of of last year, you know peaked at around just under three percent. And now it's actually in for the month of August, I believe it was negative. Uh, so just a, it, just an extremely different picture in terms of CPI. And yeah, maybe that Leland is why some folks are speculating that eventually they they have to to do some form of stimulus. And it looks like again, maybe maybe setting a floor is is a very good mental framework for people because there have been some soft measures of stimulus, but not the big you know giddy up that the for the economy that people were were looking for. But yeah, that. That the inflation data in China is just very interesting, especially compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, there, there's a good there's a good story, and then there's a worrisome story in, in the inflation data right now. So uh, China is not in the middle is, is not undergoing broader deflation. I know that you see a number here and a number there, that and then you get a headline about deflation in China. There is not deflation in China right now. Uh, but the worry is that coming off the year like 2022, when the economy was in lockdown and you had, you know, contracting activity during huge chunks of the year, you should have had explosive inflation, or at least catch up inflation in 2023. Uh, you had inflation. And during some of the during the spring, we saw pretty healthy inflation. But the, the, the surprise was is that, look, you should be having more of it. 
uh, with the, with the world looking the way it does, and with the economy coming off a, a year of lockdown activity, you should have seen more explosive catch up inflation. And what you're seeing right now is you're seeing um, you know you saw stronger inflation in the spring. Now our inflation indicators are flat. You're see you're seeing inflation, but it's very low inflation. Um, that's not a problem. In some ways, it's 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 it would be good, except that this is supposed to be when China's in their big recovery from last year. So the fact that you've got weak inflation right now during a time it should be much faster, you know, creates a question over what are we going to see early next year, for instance, when any semblance of recovery is long past, you know, are we going to tip into deflation? Are we, you know, are things just slowing down so dramatically because consumption is, it just doesn't have much oomph behind it. So um, the data are not worrisome right now, but because they're not stronger, it lends a, a Lends to the question, you know, what's what are things going to be like early next year, and are we going to have a problem then? And and then and maybe so. Um, now, the you know, this, this is what the central banks come to us for because you know while they're interested in the shadow the shadow banking system and stresses and property and 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 overall growth, what they have been worried about, uh, Fed others, it has been. How do we understand the inflation picture in China? And what could be exported out of China in, into our supply chains? Uh, you know, and when COVID zero lockdown was 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 uh, was was full throttle in 2022, you know, we were getting questions uh, from our central bank for central banks we work with. They, they were like, "Well, what are we supposed to expect?" Because we could see it either way. You know, we could see the supply chain snafus and breakdowns in China creating inflation that's exported in the U.S. supply chains. Um, you know, or you could see the opposite. You could see, you know, uh, you know, you could see deflation, you know, based on you know disappointing recovery. I mean, what's what's the what what's going to happen here? Is it uh, is it going to be inflation? Is it going to be deflation? How do we look at this? Because this was like a big X factor for the Fed and other central banks that were trying to calibrate their policy. Uh, what actually happened in 2022 and and now again in 2023 is is rather Goldilocks. You know, they they didn't have a spike in inflation. They didn't have it too strong. They didn't have it too weak. Um, you know, the supply chain situation was a lot better, uh, you know, was, did not have as many negative effects as we thought in, you know, West Coast supply chains, uh, although there were some. But there also wasn't a soaring rally that, you know, juiced commodities last year and added to the, the worries the Fed may have on, on inflation. So it, there has not been a problem coming out of China on the inflation front for central banks in the last year and a half. And that, is, that has made their job much easier. You know, but we have to watch this because, you know, right now there's much more worries about, about deflation, which, which, which central banks are actually not terribly upset about. But it, China, because it's an X factor, is something that, that, that is being watched very carefully because it, it'll throw off a calibrated policy um, if, if people don't have the right data on it. Yeah. So, Leland, uh, just maybe just to sum up, because we've been talking about China in in isolation here, but obviously, I, what I, where I want to end this conversation is connecting China with what's going on on a global basis. So, the idea here is for for folks that are still waiting for some sort of collapse in China, that's not going to happen anytime soon. It's because of this sort of command control structure that China has that's very different from a free market based system that we have over in Western economies, but. The trade-off of that system is that we should be looking at more more slow growth uh, over the near, even long term, in China, and that also dovetails with the new uh, economic policy and so and sort of the reforming of the social contract that that she has formed. Is that about an accurate summary of what right, we you, you said it better than I did? And I, I think the way to encapsulate that into a, in, even further into a bumper sticker is, I think I think investors are far too bearish cyclically 
but they're far too bullish structurally on what's happening in the economy. From both directions, I would say the consensus uh, has some problems. That's really interesting. So let's connect what's going on in in China with global asset markets, because that's that's another area where I feel like there's an enormous amount of uncertainty and continued surprises around. So just for maybe just starting at the highest level, when you think about China's place within the world economy and how it tends to affect, uh, affect various asset markets, what's the sort of high level for the place that China occupies? Well, China is a major net energy importer. So everyone wants to understand activity in China uh, for that reason. I mean, it could affect prices of not just oil, but but so many different commodities. So that's it's really important to understand the China story. We ended up working with you know a lot of commodities firms, you know, it, it, that that didn't have China, you know, they, they weren't really worried about the China story, but they were worried about not getting the China story right, and it would throw off their commodity price you know, forecasts around the world. So, you know, the, you can't get commodities right unless you understand China. Um, so that's that's really a, a, a big issue. The, the connecting the connecting tissue, though, is 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 something is another misconception I would say, which is that that China drives global growth. So everywhere I look, I see the same statement, China's driving global growth. And the reason people think this is China has high levels of GDP growth and therefore, well, wait a second, China's growing at 5% this year and someone else is growing at 2% and you either look at the nominal numbers or look at the GDP growth things. China's growth is, 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 is very high and therefore China is the global growth driver. And I think that's uh, exactly wrong. Uh, China's not the global growth driver. In some ways, it's actually the opposite uh, because you know, GDP growth doesn't drive global growth. Trade does. And if you look at the dif- divergence between Chinese exports, which have been at record numbers for years and years and years, especially during COVID, um, you see enormously strong export economy. And you look at imports, you see an enormously weak domestic economy when it comes to consumption. And so what's actually happening, and it, because, because of, the, of, the, of, the, of the trade dynamics, trade surplus, China's actually hoovering up demand from the rest of the world. So I think it not only is it wrong that China is driving global growth, the opposite is true. It's actually sucking up global growth uh, and is a net negative overall because of, because of how weak the domestic economy is, to, because how weak uh, imports are. So you know that this is a little bit different than the commodity question, but it's very important in understanding China's place in the world. We should not be rooting for high levels of G- Chinese GDP because somehow we think it's going to redound to the benefit of America or Europe or anyone else. If anything, it has been the opposite for years. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you, in, in one of our previous interviews, where you made this exact point to me, where I, I said exactly what what you just said is that China being the engine of global growth. And the way you reframed it to me at the time was that actually it is is really the the U.S. consumer that is the energy of growth, and China is set up to feed that. But that's really interesting I, that I hadn't really thought of before. Is that China, by virtue of, I mean, depending on how you think about this, is sort of. Uh, Wanting a weaker currency, not to call them outright currency manipulators, but also just structuring their economy in such a way to be the, the factory of the world. They're, they're sort of, in a sense, sucking growth from or, or a damper for growth on all the rest of the world, which is highly interesting. So how does this shift in Xi's policy domestically impact growth for the rest of the world then? Well, I mean, what she's trying to do is say the ideas of uh, the idea of prioritizing artificially high levels of of growth, GDP growth, et cetera. Uh, those days are over. Uh, we don't care anymore. We have we have bigger priorities. Um, you know, you could say it's it's to restructure the economy, but what they really want to do is batten down the hatches so there's less 
vulnerabilities vis-a-vis the United States and others. I mean, part of that is on the national security side. Uh, it's, it's vulnerability over the dollar and global payments and other things. Part of it's a domestic chip ecosystem, which they don't have in China, but they know that they're susceptible to, to, to stronger sanctions if, 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 if those happen. So I think she is worried about making sure that, 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 other countries don't have more leverage over China uh, than, you know, to minimizing that leverage. And, and that's you. China's a food importer. It's an energy importer. It's a it's a semiconductor importer. It's, it's all these things. It has a lot of vulnerabilities. So she is focused on those. I know we can have a longer debate on whether it's possible to, to fix that problem at all. If it's a problem that can, it can be fixed. Uh, but certainly the focus is on addressing the, the degree of vulnerability that China has to the rest of the world. That's where the focus is right now. That is where Xi Jinping's mind is. It's not on higher levels of growth. It's not on providing stimulus. It's certainly not on the stock market, you know, which is, which is, you know, uh, done nothing. Uh, if, if you look at back 15 years to now, it, they, you know, that's, 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 that's not, that's not a priority of the government right now. So. Um, you know, we, we have to make sure that we are looking at the economy through Xi's eyes and not through the eyes of investors who want to see stimulus, who want to see a stronger A-share market, who want to see bigger, you know, uh, you know, trade numbers or GDP growth numbers. That's just not, that's not Xi's perspective anymore. All right. I, w- I want to return to that, that idea of seeing the world through Xi's eyes and through the United States eyes. So I want to end on kind of this geopolitical power struggle that we're seeing, but I want to I return to the point that you made about commodities. So Commodities and maybe oil in general. I feel like that's that's critical to understand that picture for demand because, especially right now when we're trying to tease out what is the future of it, what is inflation going to look like in the U.S. over the next couple of years. Obviously, commodities plays an enormous role in there, but really, oil plays an enormous role in there too. And you can start to see with oil inching back up, you start to see economists say, "Oh, well, maybe inflation is going to be a little bit stickier because they're worried about that." energy component in headline, at least. So in terms of, I, I know it's very, very difficult to sort of forecast this out, but is there any connection to be made there in between the the changing picture for demand in China and the inflation picture over here in the United States? Well, there is, because if you look at what's happened for the last 20 years, you've had low inflation in the United States uh, in large part because China has exported disinflation through the production of cheaper and cheaper and cheaper goods. And so you've had enormous amount of goods disinflation over time, and that's kept U.S. inflation down. Now, you have a couple things pushing back against that right now. You know, you have decoupling, which, of course, is its own hour-long conversation because decoupling means something different to everybody who talks about it. Uh, But you have some aspects of the relationship between the U.S. or the West and China that are decoupling, like the tech sector. Others, financial sector, you know, financial flows, not not yet. but um, but you know those are inflationary. Um, certainly, the the more that we bifurcate supply chains, uh, you know, extricate China from supply chains. Uh, don't worry about the lowest cost alternative and, and and sort of the globalized solution, but worry about securing supply chains as the priority. All these things are inflationary. Um, now, what is happening in China? Are we going to see inflation in China? No, but but we, you know the question is if we see less disinflation, then that could have a big effect. We could just we could still be seeing disinflation. We could even see some deflationary impulses occasionally out of China. But if it's less so than before, then that will you know have a net inflationary uh, you know effect on, on on the United States and the West. So how do you add up all these things? Technology is obviously deflationary. It's a much more complicated batch of uh, you know of, of of inputs to to, to sort of net out. Um, but I think that the overall thrust of things is that, you know, even if China continues to 
to export disinflation in the United States, if it exports less disinflation than it did it before, then that is more that that creates inflationary pressure in the United States. And so, um, you know, this is an ongoing story. We have to watch how strong China's economy is, how much it tries to decouple. But um, that's that's the worry that 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 the super strong deflationary impulse from China will either disappear or will be less strong in the future. When people talk about inflation and the inflationary picture over in those, the the things that they tend to talk about are technology. So we're in the midst of an AI boom, and I think you'd be pretty silly to ignore that. And obviously, that's going to be an enormous have an enormous impact on things. But technology across the board generally has a very deflationary impact. Demographics. Demographics are critical. We, we sort of started to see the, the boom in demographics that happened post-World War II run over. And in many different developed economies, they're, they're facing a, a labor problem, especially in, in China, right? From my understanding, there's going to be something like 100 million people over the next decade removed from the working age population in China, which is certainly going to be a problem that they're going to have to deal with. But then there's this issue of, to me, I, I always tend to fall back on the most proximate issue, I think, which is the ability to borrow for at least developed economies from low-cost labor pools around the globe. And while there are these longer, more secular forces around deflate that are pointing in a more deflationary way, it would be very difficult for me to see, let's say, things like the the CHIPS Act continue and we really try to decouple supply chains. I just don't see a world in the next three to five years, if we really go into that full bore, that that doesn't have an extremely inflationary effect or outweigh the the deflationary forces of demographics and technology. I know that was a bit more of a statement than a question, but I, I don't know how you would weigh. I think that's fair. Um, look, if you're, you're 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 trying to add up all the deflationary components in the next couple of years, and you're adding them to the things that are probably going to be highly inflationary, if you net all that out, you're probably left with a picture, particularly in the next several years, which are more inflationary pressure than you saw before. So it doesn't mean you're you know you, you're necessarily looking at a at, at a future of very high inflation because you do have you have deflationary and disinflationary forces pushing back against it. But yeah, I think that if you add everything up and you just look at the, the picture of, of globalization, uh, not being totally reversed, but, but certainly being broken down from, from its, from what it was, uh, all of this is, is inflationary. So yeah, I think you have an, you have more inflationary pressures going forward than you did before. I, I think that's a safe baseline to have. Leland, one thing, question that I have for you, and I know no one has the answer to this, and we're wading into the realm of speculation here, but how possible is it to decouple the economic activity and, and frankly, just models of the United States and China? At this point, it just seems like, although politically, it seems like they're moving further and further apart, although there is an, an article in the Wall Street Journal, September 28th, so last week, about the US and China actually trying to do a, a Xi Biden summit. Um, so maybe, maybe there are going to be efforts to to walk back some of the the escalation and intention between these two these two nations. But it, it seems like politically we're moving further and further apart, and there's starting to be almost the beginnings of an, an a, a groundswell in the U.S. If we shouldn't be doing business in China, that's not the moral thing to do, or whatever, whatever. But it, it seems like the the relationship that we have that you know at a very high level outside of China holding a bunch of our uh, reserves is they are a surplus country and we are a deficit country. China has a surplus that they recycle into US treasuries, although admittedly less and less these days. And we are a debtor country and we get cheap financing from the rest of the world. But historically, it's really been China. In addition to that, there are just you know 
tens or, or hundreds of thousands of individual business links and relationships in between the U.S. and China. And it really seems for the time being as if we are fully dependent on the other. So maybe the answer here is that you know we're just going to have to find a way and it's going to be extremely messy. But I wonder you know, how much you've thought about just the degree to which it's even possible to, to decouple at all. I spend way too much time thinking about it. Actually, no, I was going to say, you know, you know, I'm making assumptions, but I would guess you. Yeah, no, no. This is this is this is maybe topic number one that that I that I worry about and I get questions about from clients. Uh, so, look, decoupling means a lot of different things. Decoupling, in some extreme sense, means you know the two companies iron wall between them, nothing happens. So you don't have capital flows from one to the other. You don't have supply chains from one to another. We're nowhere near that. And I think outside of a kinetic confrontation, presumably over Taiwan, um, you're not going to, you're not going to have people on both sides of the Pacific, particularly the United States, willing to take the pain, uh, required for doing any true sense of decoupling. Uh, You know, a lot of talk. We're going to decouple this, we're going to decouple that. But when it comes down to paying the price for that, um, I don't think the a lot of entities in the U.S. system, from Congress down to corporates, uh, are going to be willing to pay that price unless deterioration in the relationship is is much more significant than it is right now. That doesn't mean you can't have certain other types of decoupling, like tech sector decoupling. So what we are seeing right now, it's been uneven, it's been slow. Uh, it's, it hasn't been very transparent, but you have seen tech sector decoupling where the United States is stepping in to ring fence some advanced technology uh, from China. Uh, you know, semiconductors, things related to artificial intelligence, quantum, et cetera. Um, the, the export controls are much weaker than people think. They have huge loopholes that you could drive a semi truck, you know, semi, semi truck through the, you know, the Swiss cheese nature of these things, but, but you are moving in that direction. So there is certain types of decoupling happening. Uh, you're just not seeing broader decoupling. And I think what happens is every time you feel a pressure point, then you know China pushes back and say, okay, well, we control all these rare earths. We control so many inputs to the green economy. You know, Our firms are leaders of the world in electric vehicles and batteries. If you keep pushing this, then we're going to cause you pain on that. And, um, and so the question is, is that does the deterioration of the relationship or the negativity in the relationship, uh, does it hit a certain level to which people are willing to take the economic pain um, from 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 true decoupling. We're not there yet. Uh, there is a future that where we could be, uh, but I think that you know, in, in terms of in terms of uh, the process right now, it's just it's very gentle. It's mostly tech sector. Uh, you are seeing supply chains getting uprooted from China um, because Western companies don't want to have the vulnerability to, you know. China geopolitically or from a COVID style lockdown or from trade tensions. And so you are seeing, you are seeing some elements of this, but you are not seeing a broader decoupling yet because it's going to be a lot uh, a more costly process. And I don't think people are understand how costly that will be and have, you know, prepared themselves for, for paying that. There may be a time in the future where, where that changes though. In a, in a past life, I used to work in consulting. And one of the things that we would specialize in and help with is the purchase of steel. Obviously, China is the largest global provider of steel. And steel, broadly, there's a lot of, you get very granular in terms of how it ends up getting cut and processed and whatever, but there's sort of hot rolled and cold rolled steel. And a while ago, if you remember actually in the Trump election back in 2016, a hot topic was steel and how we shouldn't be, we're going to do a tariff and ban. this was happening before Trump anyway, but we're going to do a tariff on hot rolled steel or maybe it was cold rolled. And 
what you saw was that imports from China dropped drastically, but at the same time, almost one for one imports from Vietnam went up to compensate. And what was happening was China was shipping their steel to Vietnam. They were processing just enough to say that, yes, this was made in Vietnam and then it was coming to the US <laughs> through, through that direction. So there are just so many loopholes that you can get around some of these, these trade wars. Absolutely. You, you brought back some, some, uh, some memories from the old 301 trade tariff days, which, which are kind of come back. I mean, look at who the, you know, the leaders of the Republican uh, race right now and the Democratic race are, are, are the, the, the two guys from 2020 and, and, and tariffs and, and other things are going to, are going to return to the headlines before not too long. So, um, you know, it's been quiet on that front for a while, but I think we're about to return to that. And, you know, maybe the next time, we, you know, we do a uh, podcast, you're going to be asking me more about those same dynamics we talked about in 2016. 2017, 2018. Leland, uh, you've been been super generous with your time here. And I want to underscore, I mean, one of the things that maybe we could have gotten a little bit deeper into this interview and is just the the depth of data that the China Beige Book has on what's going on on the ground in China. And at least from from my vantage and some of the different sources that I've seen, it's very unique in terms of the the depth and accuracy. So you want to give folks a little bit more of sort of an overview of what China Beige Book does and how folks can find out either more information about you or China Beige Book or, or take a look into things? What's the best way to do that? Yeah, so we have the largest private data collection operation in the world uh, focused on the Chinese economy. And what we try to do is provide an alternative to Chinese government statistics and and provide different types of t- statistics and and provide you know visibility into parts of the economy that, that investors don't have very good uh, you know lens into, whether it's the labor market, it's it's the credit uh, shadow credit worlds, uh, it's it's inflation and it's overall growth, the regional growth, and and uh, and so we try to we we try to carry on a dialogue that allows us to 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 see the world through eyes that don't have the political lens that Beijing's numbers do. So that's uh, that's that's what we do, um, and uh, you know we we try to be part of the broader conversation. Um, you know, we, we release monthly flash data, we release quarterly data, we release, you know, commentaries and economic notes on, on themes and subjects that we, th- we think are timely. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we try to get as much of this into the, uh, you know, obviously we're, we're, we work, we work for clients, but, but we try to get as much of this into the broader, uh, media realm as possible. And so, you know, very, you know, we, we're on Twitter. Uh, regularly at China Beige Book, uh, and you know we're, we get our coverage. You know every month there's some, there's someone coming out with the China Beige Book take and comparing it to the official take. So you know we're 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 on we're on Bloomberg and the Washington Post, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal, but uh, we're also on, on on Twitter. So if you want to uh, to track what we're doing, uh, I think you can. I think it's safe to say that we're we're one of the more provocative voices in, in the China field uh, in in terms of uh, you know. Calling it like we see it, and and not letting people get away with uh, with uh, marketing that uh, we think is uh, disingenuous and not real analysis. So we come at people on Twitter, and we try to provide the real story, and uh, we, we hope people uh, find it amusing. Yeah, a hundred percent underscore. It's a great follow on Twitter, and what I would underscore out there for for listeners in this audience who might not directly invest in China, it's still very important to understand what's going on in China because that ripples out and impacts the entire global economy. So I would just underscore, even if you're like, well, I don't necessarily directly invest in China. There's a whole lot of reasons to subscribe, I would say. So Leland, thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, I always enjoy our chats and we'll have to do it again sometime soon. This is great. Thanks for having me.